Hey everybody, it's Glenn Thrush with Politico's Off Message Podcast. Uh, and if you're like me, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, who have already started uh, beating each other with rhetorical baseball bats, are harshing your mellow. Well, I got a solution. Maybe we all need to just take a little toke of Governor Gary Johnson. He is the former governor of New Mexico and the current libertarian candidate for president, along with Bill uh, Weld, uh, the former governor of Massachusetts. Uh, he is also the former head of a weed company. He resigned it in January. Uh, and as he admitted to me on uh, on the podcast, a uh, not infrequent sampler of his own product. Uh, and he indicated to me that he thought Donald Trump might be a nicer dude if he, uh, if he himself lit up occasionally. That would be pretty interesting, right? Like Trump high at a debate. Well, anyway, the question is, Will Gary Johnson, high or otherwise, wind up at any of these debates? There is a 15% threshold in polling that's required to get on the debate stage with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Currently, he's polling between 8 and 12%. Uh, his real performance in, in 2012 was 0.99%. But this is a different year, and there is a lot of dissatisfaction with these two candidates. I will make a plea, a plea to the debate commission to drop that threshold to 8 to get this guy on the stage for the simple reason uh, that we need someone uh, with a slightly more positive attitude. <laughs> and in my conversation with Johnson, uh, he was nothing if not positive. I mean, this is a guy who um, paraglides, who is a mountain biker. The, the truth of the matter is, you know, his platform seems pretty trippy. Um, at the Libertarian Convention in New York, uh, there was a guy uh who hadn't done a ton of sit-ups, who stripped down in front of uh, Governor Johnson and everybody else. Uh, it seems like a little bit of a sideshow, but truth be told, I sat with this guy for the better part of an hour. I have not spoken to a more level-headed or well-informed person in either party during this campaign. He had a clear idea of what he wanted to do. And intriguingly to me, his goal, in addition to having an impact on the process, I think he's pretty realistic about getting elected. He doesn't think he's going to get elected president. He wouldn't mind being a kingmaker. Um, is, is to establish the Libertarian Party as a permanent and powerful third party in American politics. But his other goal is to go through this process of running for president in a Zen-centered way. Now, that may seem a little Jerry Brown, 1978, but uh, considering how crazy and how negative and how sulfuric and how ugly this process is going to be, um, I think it's pretty cool to have a guy with that attitude. A uh, little bit of business here. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes and on SoundCloud uh, and rate us on iTunes. We're getting really nice ratings, really good feedback. Uh, send me your suggestions for guests, some criticisms. Though, you know, a couple weeks ago I said um, that I really, really wanted people to bash me, to send me uh, criticism. Well, I think we've reached the threshold on that. I've been getting a lot of emails from you guys. Now what I would love is, is just... Um, unalloyed praise uh, just to kind of bring my self-esteem back up to the level it really needs it needs to be as we move into the bathing suit season you can always email me at gthrush at politico.com well without any further ado here is governor gary johnson so let's talk about weed yeah 
<laughs> um, you are uh, uh, I'm with uh, Governor Gary John- Johnson here in New York, and I should say what, we're sitting in a conference room of a Times Square hotel that looks like it would be the transaction point for a drug deal involving something maybe a little bigger Glenn, than marijuana. are we in a hotel room or are we in a sauna here? <laughs> it is, it is, it is a, a schwitzy. And, it's just fine. And as you pointed out, you're a big fan of the dry heat. This is not, New York does not it's fine. give you the dry heat. Um, so let me just ask you flat out. I, I was reading uh, some of the biographical stuff. It said that you smoked a bit of cannabis uh, from 2005 to 2008, when you had this really catastrophic paragliding uh, accident. Yes. Tell me yes. a little bit about that, and and have you ever, subsequent to 2008, partook of? of, of oh yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I, I've grown up. Um, I've grown up using marijuana. I'm I'm one of a hundred million Americans plus that have done that. As governor of New Mexico, I I never partook and. Um, I haven't had a drink of alcohol in 29 years, but from the first time I used marijuana, uh, I found it to be such a safer alternative than everything else that's out there, and really starting with uh, alcohol. Really, it just didn't seem to have a side effect. As an athlete in uh, high school, it was just, wow. Um, so what did you do? when? And, and, and the first, first uh, takeaway, gosh, the government has lied about this one. What else have they lied about? So when you first, so you first started, well, you are, you have, uh, we were just talking before we came on, you've summited Everest and, and you've done the seven. Uh, yeah, the highest mountain on each continent. Amazing. Um, so let's talk about getting high at, 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 uh, at 5,000 feet, which is what, what I guess Albuquerque is, right? Um, what, um, uh, tell me, what, what kind of athletics did you participate in? Every single sport. There wasn't a sport that I didn't participate in. I really kind of... Uh, dropped out of sports when I no longer became a starter. And, uh, you know, I've competed in hundreds of athletic competitions, uh, triathlons, marathons, uh, ultra distance. Uh, Right now, mountain biking is passion. Uh, Road biking is a passion. Skiing is a passion. I live just north of Taos. I live very close to Taos Ski Valley. Taos has as good a skiing as anywhere on the planet, and I've had the good fortune to ski a lot of the planet. And so when you said that you uh, started getting high as an athlete in high school, just sort of explain to me what what that environment was like. What era are we talking about? Well, we're talking about 1970, and um, as I've always said, uh, no excuses. I mean, I was one of 100 million people that did the same, but I'm one of them. How old were you when you started doing it? So it would have been 17 years old, yeah. And it was mellow. <laughs> well, it was, it was enlightening. I mean, you know, uh, bottom line, uh, smoking marijuana, drinking alcohol, when you first start doing anything like that, really, you, you know, you become uninhibited. It really, um, it, I, I use the term enlightening. Anything used in excess, though, ultimately ends up having the opposite impact, and I've been able to see that, too. So. Well, I grew up on the East Coast, harder-edged kind of place. I grew up in an urban environment, and, and there was weed around, but alcohol was much more prevalent. We were drinking Jim Beam when I was 15, 16 years old in Brooklyn, uh, different place, different drug. Different place, different time, right. Right. 
Um, so in terms of the, um, and, and as I mentioned, you had this awful accident. Tell me, so you recreationally, you obviously are, the, you are the CEO of the company. Tell me a little bit about the company. <clears throat> well, uh, I was a CEO of Cannabis Sativa. Uh, I was a CEO up until January 1st of this year. I resigned to do this. But uh, being CEO, the whole, hey, my motivation behind all of it was to make the world a better place. Uh, on the medicinal side, so legalizing marijuana, in my opinion, makes the world a better place. On the medicinal side, medical marijuana products directly compete with legal prescription drugs that statistically kill 100,000 people a year. There's not, Glenn, there's not been one documented death due to marijuana. That's the medical side. And these products arguably are just as so effective. Maureen Dowd had a really rough weekend in Denver. Well, she, she, she did the marijuana thing equivalent to drinking a half a bottle of tequila. I mean, that's what she did. We were, were kind of trying to figure it out. She took a 400 milligram dose of uh, marijuana when 25, I think, would have maybe been over the line. Right. But she took 400. Anyway, and then on the recreational side, uh, I have always maintained that legalizing marijuana will lead to less overall substance abuse because people will find it as such a safer alternative than everything else that's out there, starting with alcohol. The campaign to legalize marijuana in Colorado uh, was a campaign based on marijuana is safer than alcohol. All the statistics that were supposed to go south in Colorado have actually gone north. Um, do you think, uh, let me sort of intersect this with the current political argument. Do you think, you know, Donald Trump, one of the interesting aspects of Donald Trump is he's abstemious. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do anything. Do you think he would uh, maybe be a more reasonable fellow if he partook from time to time? <laughs> well, perhaps. And, uh, and that doesn't just apply to Donald Trump. I think... Uh, I think when it's legalized, I think uh, here's going to be the experience of millions of Americans who have abstained because it's been illegal and it, because it's been such a boogeyman drug. I think the reaction is going to be similar to mine when I did it, and that is, wow, this is very pleasant, and um, the government's been lying about this my entire life, and maybe, they're, maybe they've been lying about other things, too. So it's a, a mellow skeptical rage. It's a mellow skeptical rage. The, the only, only thing in danger when it comes to uh, consuming marijuana is uh, bags of potato chips. They're susceptible to damage. But if they're Trump potato chips, then I think you've got... What if Trump... I mean, the other possibility is if Trump brands... I mean, he branded wine, Right. Well, maybe the, uh, maybe the marijuana uh, consumer, maybe they're going to be a little bit more aware and won't fall for that one. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they'll be more likely to, uh, to consume a product that's branded high, as in small H, small I, which is <laughs> one of the assets that cannabis sativa has. Well, there, and there are two kinds, uh, something I didn't really realize, there are two kinds of uh, marijuana, right? There's cannabis and what's the other one? Well, no, there's sativa, sativa and there's indica. Indica is go-to-sleep marijuana, and sativa is clean-your-house marijuana with a smile. And, the <laughs> and you're going to clean house. <laughs> no, the, the, um, uh, I should just say, in full disclosure, it was not something I had done uh, really at all as a kid. I've done it in the last couple of years from time to time to deal with whatever stress or whatever. People who've got medical marijuana cards just want to be frank about that. And I have found it totally different than the stuff I had when I was a kid which you had to go to Washington Square Park in the village to get, and half the time it was oregano. 
Uh, right, right. No, that, yeah. Well, that's prohibition. That's, that's overdose deaths. That's heroin overdose. That has everything to do with prohibition. Quality, quantity, unknown. Um, so in terms of this, and of course this is, uh, uh, marijuana is not just a trivial side note in this conversation. It is, uh, no pun intended, sort of the seed of a larger political ideology that you represent, which is uh, non-prohibition uh, on things and, and a lack of government intervention in general on, on most matters. Well, let me, you know, there's this, uh, there's this talk right now about the heroin epidemic, uh, let me point out some facts that maybe you're not aware of, Glenn. So I'm going to give you a little quiz here. 450,000 people are estimated to die every year from their use of tobacco. 100,000 people every year are estimated to die from their use of alcohol. Not drinking and driving, not guns, but just the physical impacts of using alcohol. 100,000 people. 100,000 people are estimated to die every year from their use of legal prescription drugs. Here we go with the question. Yep. This was a shock to me. How many people die every year from cocaine and heroin overdose based on those other numbers? Five to 10,000 would be my You're guess. right. You're right on. And, of course, the initial knee-jerk is, is that— but, I, but your alcohol numbers, I think, are low-balling it tremendously because there is a—I think alcohol—I totally agree with you, man. I think alcohol is the most dangerous substance this country has ever known. I agree. Um, I agree. That because there's a, there's a knock-on effect, um, a knock-on effect that's far more profound societally than just can be quantified by deaths, you know? Yes. Oh, oh absolutely. And so the knee-jerk is, is, well, of course it's that low because—and most people don't guess that low. Most— People don't make that kind of an educated guess. Most people guess 100,000, you know, 300,000. But bottom line, uh, you could argue that if these were controlled substances, if, if you actually knew what you were injecting, uh, that that number would be far lower than what it is. Because what kills is quality, quantity, unknown. What kills is, is that your dealer forever has now gotten arrested and he's off in jail uh, and the next day, you get the same visual quantity of heroin that you've been consuming for all this time. But, hey, the, the quality of it is way up, and so you end up overdosing. When they talk about a heroin epidemic right now, and, you know, statistics, look, if you're affected by overdose or, or um, you know, the death due to overdose, I'm, I'm not wanting to minimize the impact that this has on individuals uh, but when you're talking about statistically going from 80 uh, overdose deaths in a state to 92, statistically that's a pretty big number. Right. But the reality is it's not not all well, the, that big a number. With oxy, the oxy and prescription thing is uh, is I think a much uh, larger issue. But that's America in general. It's the legalized stuff that always causes uh, the, the maximal damage, right? Uh, historically. Well, and that's, you know, that's back to the FDA and uh, it's doctors prescribing what is legal and it's politicians that have uh, passed legislation that this is your only alternative. But here's what's so interesting about you as a candidate um, that I find. Everybody in terms of the Beltway uh, political analyst talks about how you are a threat to Trump. I've read this, this very interesting Cato analysis. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but when I've, I've watched dozens of your YouTubes, I've seen your speeches, I've seen interviews that you've done, you, to me, in, in a visceral sense, appeal far more to the Bernie Sanders voter than you do to the Donald Trump voter. Well, and, and uh, speaking to that in a, in a very objective way, uh, for everybody listening to this, go to the website isidewith.com, isidewith.com, 60 questions 
really easy to get on the site, but you answer 60 questions, and at the end of the 60 questions, you get paired up with the presidential candidate most in line with your views. Don't you owe it to yourself to find out who you actually are compatible with? But and do you think, like, if, if we're doing a... Like well, here, <laughs> like, here's... Like a J-date. You, are you most compatible in terms of the candidates in the field with Sanders, do you think, at this point in time? Well, so here are my yeah, results. Yeah. My yeah. results are, are, of course, that I side with myself <laughs> all of the time. <laughs> But next in line of all the candidates left running for president, I side most with Bernie Sanders at 73%. Now, obviously, when we, co we come to a T in the road when it comes to economics, but on the social side, we're, we're simpatico. So Bernie Sanders supporters are, are going to have, in my opinion, the same result that I've got. Take that, take that quiz and guess what? Well, Next there, to Bernie, uh, I'm going to be your guy. I'll give you one fundamental difference. Uh, that is, uh, you are, you are uh, against, uh, I don't know if this is currently a position, but for a long time you were against student loans because you believe it hikes uh, overall tuition, that it creates an inflated Absolutely, an, an that's, the, market. that's the reason for the high cost of college He's tuition. for student loan amnesty altogether. Uh, and that's, by the way, that is a huge element of his appeal when you look at the polling. Do you think he's just wrong about that? Well, what, what he's right about is, is that uh, students have been sold a bill of goods. So uh, as president of the United States, at the end of the day, I get to either sign or veto legislation that Congress sends me. Uh, I would really take a hard look at uh, how students might, uh, uh, I don't know, receive some sort of uh, benefit or, or, or reduced interest rate. I mean, if we can, uh, if the Federal Reserve can bail out all the big banks, it seems to me that uh, we might arrange lower interest rates for these loans to get paid back. But students have been sold a bill of goods, and the bill of goods is, is that, uh, you know, you, you, there's no... There's no excuse for you not to go to college because of guaranteed government student loans. And because of that, in my opinion, college tuition is uh, cost twice as much as it would have cost if there would have been no government guaranteed student loans. Do you feel the same way about the mortgage uh, tax deduction and federal uh, subsidies for housing? Well, uh, I'd like to scrap the entire uh, tax code. I'd, I'd like to eliminate income tax. I would like to eliminate corporate tax. If we do that, uh, we can also abolish the IRS. Uh, look, uh, Cong I think there's a possibility Congress could do that. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're going to replace it with something. Well, I think a national consumption tax is a really fair way to move forward in this country, be easy to administrate. Uh, nobody's going to avoid a consumption tax. Hey, bottom line, you make more money, you're going to consume more. Uh, so I suggest well, I'd, I'd, make, I'd make one counter argument on that, and that is uh, having covered poverty for a while. The, the uh, highest percentage consumers tend to be on the lowest end of the economic scale. And one of the issues that you're dealing with when you're dealing with very wealthy people is they tend to create what used to historically be called stagnant pools of capital, where they hoard. So oftentimes the very wealthy do not consume, they hoard. So it's hard to sort of uh, tax them when they are not consuming. Well, and, and there's, there's also a, a justified rap that uh, um, a consumption tax is regressive to those mm. on the lowest end of the scale. Well, what I was going to say is, is that um, look, look at the fair tax uh, as a template for how to dot the I's and cross the T's in accomplishing one federal consumption tax. The way that the fair tax deals with that is they issue everyone a prebate check 
every month through the Social Security Administration that allows everyone to pay the fair tax up to the point of the poverty level. It's funny that Donald Trump would call you a fringe candidate because the, this- by the way, I think he just nailed it. By the way. <laughs> I am I am totally a fringe candidate. And so is Bill Well, you know, two Republican governors serving in heavily blue states, outspoken, uh, small government guys, uh, outspoken on the uh, con- socially liberal side. But, We're fringe. But, totally. But, Glenn, but, but We're look, fringe. Well, you're on. fringe insofar <laughs> as you, you, you're conversant with issues. I mean, I, you know, you're speaking with a level of granularity and understanding of these issues that seem to be absent from the larger public discourse to some extent. Now, Hillary, now Hillary speaks the language of policy as well. I know, I know you don't agree with her. Uh, Bernie, perhaps less so. To some extent, do you think your utility is to get people to talk about actual shit in the, in the terms that they're supposed to be talked about? <laughs> I do. I think when 50% of Americans right now, uh, when they go to register to vote, are declaring themselves as independent, well, where's the representation? At the end of the day, uh, Democrats go out and appeal to 30% of the far left. Republicans go out and appeal to 30% of the far right. Um, Hey, there's a big middle ground here that's not represented. I I think that Bill Weldon, myself, I think the Libertarian Party really occupies that ground. So you're polling right now, and it could be it could be a high water mark. Though if you look at uh, 68, Wallace did 14 percent nationally. Was polling this early at around that same rate and held it. Uh, if that was in in fact the case, you would be a disruptive force. Do you think we just talked about your affinity uh, with Sanders' ideology to some extent? Uh, do you believe you pose more of a danger to Trump or more of a danger to Sanders? Uh, I think it really is 50-50. It's, it's down the middle. I think the majority of Republicans— I meant uh, Clinton, not Sanders. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, I think most Republicans uh, are about smaller government. Uh, and, hey, I think Bill Weld and I have smaller government in spades. And at the end of the day, isn't, uh, aren't Democrats supposed to be about Freedom of choice, you know, bottom line, let people make their own choices in their own lives. Well, I don't know if they've done so good about that, done so good with that. And then at the end of the day, how about these military interventions that I'm going to argue make the world less safe, not more safe? How about a couple of skeptics at the table when it comes to military policy and the fact that Congress is not involved at all? They've abdicated the responsibility to... uh, the executive. Oh, they, ab- they absolutely have with the Syria vote, for, for an example. But wait, before we get yeah, on that, let's yeah, get yeah, back to the yeah. politics. I do want to get to the, to the military stuff because I do think it's important. Um, but back, back to kind of the state by state thing. Uh, Cato did this analysis. I'm sure you saw it in USA Today where they looked at uh, your potential to sort of to tie things up to the point where no one gets to 270. And in that instance, they went wildly predictive and said, <laughs> and said Paul, you, Gary Johnson, will make Paul Ryan uh, king of the world. Um, First of all, what do you think of that scenario? And secondly, what is your ideal scenario? What is Governor Johnson's scenario? Well, ideal scenario, uh, I I would not be doing this if there weren't the opportunity to actually win. But the only opportunity to win is to be in the presidential debates. And to be in the presidential debates, you have to be at 15% in the polls. Well, you know what? My name has appeared in three national polls, 10%, 10%, 11%. But in the meantime, having appeared in those three polls, there have been another 45 national polls where my name has not appeared. So really, the crux to this whole thing is just getting my name in the polls. Uh, I think that the scrutiny that would go along with 10% plus showing uh, would... Uh, 
my record, Bill Weld's record as governor, I think it holds up so under you want the these, light of day. So your message is Quinnipiac, Monmouth, Come NBC. On, put us put put our names in the poll. We're on uh, MSNBC last night, uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, and across the screen all night long is running a new poll. Uh, by MSNBC, Trump and Clinton. And he's saying, you guys should be included in the polls. Well, come on, Lawrence. How about your own network, including us in your poll, if this is what you're saying? So you get on the debate stage. Let's let's play this all the way out. You get on the debate stage. You're going to be making these arguments. And presumably, you know, uh, I, I heard uh, a couple of libertarian folks say that you were not a great speaker. I think my experience with you today is somewhat contrary to that. Um, when you get on that stage, and let's say you get these ideas across, and let's say they resonate, what do you, where do you go from there? Well, that would be inauguration in January of next year. What states, if we're sort of looking at individual states, because as you know, national polls are meaningless, is, is this, apart, apart from the fact that they get you in a debate, right? Um, state-by-state polls are fundamental. Identify for me four to six states where you can make a real difference. Well, um, Bill Weld would be able to list those four to six states here on the East, which I think makes this also a really dream ticket. And Bill Weld, having Bill Weld as a running mate, beyond my wildest dreams, Bill Weld was a role model to me. I wanted to grow up and be like Bill Weld. So having him is just terrific. But four to six states in the West, I mean... You know, you've got Wyoming, you've got Montana, you've got Alaska, you've got Idaho, you know, arguably New Mexico, Nevada. I mean, there's, you know, this is, this is up for grabs. Smaller population states where you can have a bigger impact. Well, uh, and uh, if I'm in the presidential debates, I mean, anything is possible. I'm not saying I end up, I mean, there's a win being in the presidential debates. If you're in the presidential debates, mathematically, you're going to be representing 25 million people. Right. Uh, look, the eventual winner, whether it's either Trump or Clinton, uh, they're going to have to do more than just pay lip service um, to me if I'm on stage because they're going to want to garner that support going forward. It'd be very interesting to think of a dynamic with you in that in that mix between them because it is you know because the dynamic that we're all sort of anticipating is this like global thermonuclear rhetorical war um, and having a third voice in this would would entirely change the dynamic. And and we're not going to throw rocks at either Clinton or Trump. Uh, Tell I me mean, about this kissing thing. This was like this amused me to no end. Tell me what you did and what you would plan to do if you well, were on the debate just, stage. Just just the notion of being the the adult voice on the stage. Let's talk about issues. I mean, right. issues are up for grabs, but. You know, um, name calling and, and, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Come on. Hillary Clinton, is she guilty of her email, whatever? Well, was there criminal intent? I don't think so. Donald Trump occasionally says something that makes sense. I don't want to say that <laughs> everything that he says doesn't make sense, but occasionally he does say something. Maybe you can tweak my memory as to what that might be. But um, like I say, occasionally. Non-intervention in the Middle yeah, East. Yeah, there you right? go. There you go. Um, but you you have been pretty... Uh, I was listening to an interview that you gave with Reason Magazine in, I guess, late last year, in which you just said he... Flat out, you just said he is a racist. He represents a racist uh, strand in American politics. Do you think that's still true? Look, I come from New Mexico. 50% of New Mexico population is Hispanic. We're one of four states in the country that is minority-majority, uh, Native American, Hispanic. 
Uh, the things that he is saying relative to the border is, are absolutely incendiary, and they are wrong. They are just flat wrong. And in the 2012 cycle, it was my voice, my voice out there saying, look, building a fence across the border is really, it's, it's, it's not a good idea. There's, there's no common sense associated with building a fence across the border. And the deportation of 11 million illegal immigrants, uh, this really, at the basis of that, of that belief, is just a misunderstanding of what that really represents. That represents a lot of hardworking people that can't get across the border uh, to legally work so they cross illegally, something that you would probably do if situation was reversed to look after your family. Well, he described these people as, you know... Murderers and rapists. Right. When, in fact, statistically, they commit far less crime than U.S. citizens. Why wouldn't they commit far less crime? And, and they're absolutely the cream of the crop when it comes to workers. Let's make it as easy as possible. Well, let's look at... I, did, I interviewed and, Jeff Sessions about uh, who claimed ignorance of his own state's law. Um, let's look at what happened in Alabama to the farmers uh, when they uh, uh, cracked down on immigration before it was rolled back by the Justice Department. They saw a mass exodus of their farm workers. They couldn't get anybody to replace them and to do those jobs. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly the case. The, they're not taking jobs that U.S. citizens want, and it's not an issue of lower pay unless it's an issue of language. And they're the first ones that recognize that. So they, not unlike immigration throughout the history of this country. We are, a, we are a nation of immigrants. And if the truth be known, don't we need a whole lot of immigrants uh, to be buying homes and to drive our economy and to take jobs that U.S. citizens don't want? It's so interesting New Mexico is next door to Arizona, which is the crucible of, of quite the opposite opinion with Jan Brewer and Joe Arpaio. Well, uh, they made a name for themselves. I, I say they've created a political boogeyman. It really doesn't exist. Now, don't get me wrong. There's petty crime that exists around the border. I, I get it, but it's not heads lying, it's not cut off heads lying in the desert. I have a big business interest, uh, hotel interest in Tempe, Arizona. And after Jan Brewer came out on this issue, um, business just absolutely dried up. Really? The entire nation boycotted uh, Arizona uh, from holding any of their conventions. But what is this strain? What does it represent to you? You're clearly wanting to institutionalize your movement into something that is a real third party in the next election. That's something that's going to be durable and grow and capture this, this third of Americans or more who identify themselves as independent. How would you describe this movement that you're seeing, the Trumps, the Arpeos, the Sessions? Give me a sense historically where that movement sits. Well, just the discontent over um, Democrats and their spending and bigger government and higher taxes, and then the discontent over Republicans and this social conservative dogma that just vilifies anybody that has any notion of living life differently than social conservatives. Look, live and let live as long as personal decisions don't adversely affect others. Libertarians, broadly speaking, fiscally conservative, socially liberal, isn't that where most of us fall down? And even if you're not socially liberal, if you're socially conservative, I think the majority of social conservatives really don't care that their number one issue is smaller government. Do you think Trump it represents those values, smaller government, or can you just not tell? 
Well, no, I don't think it represents smaller government. I mean, just just what he's talking about when it comes to immigration uh, in a state that's 50% Hispanic. Are doors not going to be knocked on in New Mexico? My door included, but when they get to my door, gee, I'm white. So, well, but maybe we better check we better check your basement or your attic to make sure that you're not harboring um, any illegal immigrants. I mean, this is this is really incendiary. And if you're Hispanic, 50% of the population of New Mexico is going to be subject to getting their doors knocked on. Do you still use? Do you still think it's racist? I mean, yes, absolutely, it's racist. When he calls Mexicans murderers and rapists, that is incendiary. That is misinformed. This passion that you have about this, this notion of people coming and knocking on your doors, this unfairness that you view, where does that come from? Is there a formative experience in your life? Was there a book you read? Because it really animates it's, you. It's living in New Mexico. It's living in New Me- It's my friends on the Arizona border, not the New Mexico border, because we haven't gone bonkers over this, but it's my friends on the that are Hispanic on the Arizona border that have just resigned themselves to having to carry their papers with them. You know, folks. Yes, I do. Could you give me, an, I mean, like, without getting too specific, can you give me an example of somebody who's told you their story? Well, just that they're, they're that they've got a sticker on the back of their window of their car. I'm an American, and, and you know, um, and they've they've resigned. Like I say, they have resigned themselves to carry their papers. It's just the way it is, is what they say. And to you, that is personally deeply offensive as an American. To me, that is deeply offensive to me as an American that an Iraqi war veteran who's Hispanic is out for a jog and he doesn't have his papers and he's close to the border and uh, somehow he's going to get rounded up. So you were telling me your mother worked in the, in the Bureau of Indian Affairs for the Department of the Interior, correct? That's right. That's how we got in. That's how we arrived in New Mexico. How did you? So obviously you grew up around Native Americans to some extent, right? Not really. She was, uh, you know, she was in the office. She balanced the books for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And that's a whole nother story. My mom actually <laughs> single handedly balanced the books for the Bureau of Indian really? Affairs. And the day she left was the multi-billion dollar imbalance in those books so she was a real inspiration in terms of this notion of like uh, of a smaller more competent federal government like a personal inspiration to you? well sure and then uh, and then uh, there was the Indian preference hiring policy which really locked her out of uh, any advancement and uh, and so she got early retirement and the day she left the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs books went out of balance I mean is she still around yes she's alive and so is my dad great to hear it what did your dad do well, my dad was a school teacher. He's now 96 years old. And my dad uh, actually was in the 101st Airborne Division. He paratrooped into Normandy before D-Day. Are you kidding me? What, what town? Like St. Marigliese? Well, it was, you know, the Band of Brothers. Yeah. This, uh, that, was my, that was my father. I had no uh, idea. Saving Private Ryan. That was the 101st. I mean, my father got bayoneted in the back at the Battle of the Bulge. So he went through all of that he stuff. He went through all of it. He was, he was Band of Brothers. That was the story of the 101st all the way through the war. So how did you feel when you heard Trump, for instance, talk about, well, Trump talks about veterans now, but how did you feel when he talked about your your neighbor, John McCain, uh, about folks getting captured and all that stuff? Well, just uh, one page after another that if any other person running for public office would have made any of the hundred comments that he has made, one of them being about John McCain, they would be disqualified from holding office. And yet, turn the page, and tomorrow he'll have another comment that um, 
he keeps on going unscathed. Is he fit uh, intellectually, morally, otherwise to be president of the United States? You know, that's something I don't really engage in. I, I really believe at the end of the day that the American people will make that judgment and that it, uh, given that I'm in the race, I think I got a real sh- Let me flip it. Yeah. Are you animated by your personal belief that you want to disrupt that from happening? Am I animated? Uh, am I, I'm animated by the fact that I happen to have that opportunity. <laughs> I'm not going to get you on this one, am I? <laughs> Let me, one more, cra- we'll bite at that apple. Have you in your experience, you ran in 2012, and you had, obviously, you had Mitt Romney, Barack Obama, and you've participated in electoral politics for a really long time. Have you seen a candidate like Donald Trump before, and have you seen a candidate that you perceived as much of a threat as Donald Trump is? Well, Just historically. Uh, no. No, uh, this is this is amazing. These and and uh, you could put Hillary Clinton arguably in that same camp. These are arguably the two most polarizing figures in American politics today. And this these are our choices. No, they're not your choices. Actually, the Libertarian Party has a choice for you. Tell me why you think Hillary uh, is equivalent to Trump in this regard. Well, not equivalent to Trump, but, but uh, Democrats, they, the answer to everything is just bigger government. The answer to everything is growing government because government has the solution to everything. So at the end of the day, it's more taxes at the end of the day. At the end of the day, hasn't uh, Hillary Clinton been the architect of our foreign policy? And uh, how's that worked out? Okay, in a, a couple of minutes we have left, let's talk a little bit about foreign policy. You, uh, um, I, tell me if I'm getting my numbers right. Uh, a while ago, you proposed, I believe in 2012, a 43% across the board cut in federal uh, which, discretionary which, spending. Which had, to do with, right. uh, which had to do with balancing the federal budget. Do you uh, st- at that time, it was 43 cents out of every dollar that we were borrowing, printing money. Today, that number is 20%. So today, that's the target number is 20%. Okay, let, well, let me just throw that out to you. Then don't you give Obama some credit for having cut the deficit down a bit? Well, Obama no, and the Republican Congress that did some of these budget deals. No, well, not not really. I mean, by you know cutting cutting the, uh, it is a factor. It's a factor of reduced government spending. It's a factor of economic growth, and we've had government grow though. So no, he hasn't contributed to the equation like he, like. Like I thought I heard him say, going back to all the way to 2008, I mean, he said all the right things. He said that the deficit really is horrible and that we need to work to right. reduce it when the reality is, like I say, he's, he's, he has control over one segment of that equation. And in that segment that he has control over, or some much control over, government spending, he's... he's it hasn't happened. And discretionary is becoming a tiny, what people don't realize, and as a governor, you knew it, but, but even back then it wasn't this way. Uh, on the federal level and to an even greater extent on the local level, discretionary is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, being crowded out by pensions and entitlements, right? And, and another great untold story is, okay, no legislation passes whatsoever. You're the executive. You get to run federal government. So don't discount the power that lies uh, to achieve smaller government if you've got somebody in the Oval Office that's bent on making that happen. Okay, but that's a fascinating duality there because you are a small government libertarian who sounds to me like you are advocating a muscular executive in order to... Not, not so much mus- Well, first of all, I want to involve Congress when it comes to foreign affairs, but, but it's the reality. You, I, you run, you know, as governor, I got to run state government. Uh, so that's... that. 
that's the appointment of the heads of all these agencies. And if the heads of all these agencies are bent on making government more efficient, guess what, Glenn? It happens. How about Obama's executive order, which was decried as being a great constitutional violation by the Republicans? Obama's executive order on immigration. Did you consider that to be a violation or did you consider it a reasonable use of targeted executive power? I saw it as a reasonable use, challenging Congress to action. And I, I have, and an untold story with regard to Obama and immigration is he's broken up three million families. He has deported three million heads of household that have gone back to Mexico and his families, their families have remained in the United States. So huge issue. Huge, huge issue, issue. Huge issue. Um, and something that he only recently, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, criticized him on. In fact, I believe it was only brought up in one debate between her and Sanders. Um, so back to the foreign policy thing. Uh, you hear both Hillary and Trump talk about the threat that ISIS poses. No question that ISIS no poses question. an exis no question. existential threat. How do you do that cutting 20% of the federal defense budget? And how would you go after ISIS? Would you go after ISIS? Well, first of all, involve Congress. We've got, we've got treaties with 69 countries in the world to defend their borders that were not congressionally authorized treaties. They were um, executive executive treaties along with the military. Our decisions with regard to the military are executive and they're the military. Involve Congress. Let's get an open debate and discussion and declaration of war if that's the way that we want to treat ISIS. But how about a skeptic at the table, skeptics, Bill Weldon, myself, we're planning to do this as a partnership. I mean, I think there's a real symbiotic relationship between the two of us. And the presidency, by the way, having covered the White House for three years, I can tell you the presidency is sufficiently demanding now that the vice presidential role has expanded. I mean, Cheney was a bellwether in that regard. Biden has followed through. Now, Cheney, was he the president or the vice president? <laughs> I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember. Read Bart Gelman's book. <laughs> Um, but I, I interrupt you. You're talking about sort of the, uh, um, the, the the skeptics at the table. Would you well, skeptics at the table? Boots on the ground, uh, dropping you, bombs. Would you order a drone? Drunk. Would you, for instance, if you had reasonable intel, would you have done the Bin Laden raid? Yes, yes, that was our goal. That was our goal from day one. Get Bin Laden. He was he was uh, he was responsible for this. Going into Afghanistan initially, that was Bin Laden. Yes, you attack the United States, we're going to attack back. And let's not, um, let's not label um, uh, libertarians as isolationists. Let's label them as diplomacy to the hilt. Um, just smart about this. So you're with Rand Paul's in later, the sort of second iteration of Rand Paul's foreign policy of skepticism, but in instances where, and, and you do believe ISIS is an existential threat to the country. Right, but how is it best, how is it built, best dealt with? It clearly, um, we cut off the head of Al-Qaeda, uh, now we have ISIS. We go in. We take out. Um, we take out Saddam Hussein. He's really the check when it comes to Iran. Now we're having to deal with Iran. Where prior to that, Iran's only concern was uh, Iraq and Saddam Hussein. Unintended consequences well, remember, relative remember, to everything we do. Billion dollar a month check. The Clinton administration had that no fly zone in in uh, Iraq, and that seemed to stabilize things for a period of time. Um, so the other thing I find fascinating about you, the other wildfire that's really striking in terms of the Trump thing is the free trade stuff. You have been on the record as saying you thought NAFTA was good for New Mexico. Do you support the TPP? And do you think that this backlash against trade is bullshit? 
Well, first of all, NAFTA. Would I have signed it or not? Um, my, my skepticism says that maybe I wouldn't have signed it because these trade agreements are just laden with croating capitalism. Would I have signed or implemented the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership? I got to tell you, I think it's laden with crony capitalism. Free market really is, um, really is the answer. It's the answer to unifying the whole planet, in my opinion. And if uh, China wants to subsidize the goods that, it's, that it uh, sells to the United States, who benefits from that? Well, we do. Uh, and at the end of the day, who pays for any sort of tariffs? We do. So free trade, genuine free trade. That's another one of uh, Trump's, you know, hey, he says, I'm all for free trade. But then in the next sentence, he says, I'm going to force Apple to make their iPads and their iPhones in the United States. Hmm, that's, that sounds really free trade to me. Well, in the, in the couple of minutes I have left, I just want to talk to you about some, uh, some other sort of general stuff. Um, Again, kind of getting back to getting back to the uh, kind of things that you did. Now, you started off as a uh, hand, hand. This is like your kind of your story, right? You started off as a handyman, and then you started to run a construction business uh, over time. Um, what? Uh, well, first of all, tell me about this handyman thing that you, you did your way through. Uh, got your way through school. What did you major in, and and have you always been sort of good at that kind of thing? Well, I majored in political science and English, uh, but uh, starting from the age of 17, I've paid for everything that I've had in my life. It's just, it was a personal choice. My parents would have helped me in any way whatsoever, but for me, you know what, I can make my own way. Do you have brothers so, and sisters? I do. My brother is the best cardiothoracic surgeon in the world, and I know that for a fact because he tells me that <laughs> all the time. Where is he? Where is he? <laughs> He's actually a head of uh, cardiothoracic surgery at the University of Texas, uh, San Antonio. Wow. Big, big medical center. And my sister, uh, school teacher, uh, uh, and she's now very active uh, in retirement, and she's way too young to be retired. But um, are, anyway. they, are they libertarians as well? Or? Well, you know, my entire family growing up was very non-political, very non-political, everybody. So, uh, but informed. Yes. Yeah. Informed. Um, uh, but tell me a little bit again about sort of the doing the jobs. We, we, are you naturally handy? Are you good mechanic? I'm the handiest guy you've ever met. <laughs> so, so, so I, I took construction jobs at sev starting at 17 because they were the highest paid jobs. Yeah. And then along comes, you know, the fact that I'm uh, 21 years old and um, contractor I was working for ran out of work. So I had my brother, my cardiothoracic brother, hand out circulars door to door at two cents a circular. He'd hand out a hundred circulars. I'd end up getting six jobs. And amazing what happens when you show up on time, when you do what you say you'll what was, do for Okay. People. What was the most, what is your proudest achievement in terms of bringing something back to life? Bringing something back. Uh, fixing something. I, What's the craziest thing that you've ever fixed? There were so many. I mean, I remember one particular electrical problem in in uh, an addition that we'd done, and the electrician just throws up his hands and goes, man, I just don't know what's wrong. And I crawled up in the attic, and I can't even remember what the specific was. But after a couple of minutes, I, I found out what the problem was and fixed it. And, you know, he's he's just eating away at himself that he didn't see it or recognize it. But Did you ever screw anything up? Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> are you kidding? 
But but the key to screwing up is you know ad- admitting it and fixing it. My That's... father was a contractor. He wasn't so good at that second uh, the second part of that stuff. Okay, one one, one last that, thing. That was another one of my one of my mantras was guaranteed we'll screw it up, but uh, we'll you, fix it. You'll come back and fix it. Not a bad not a bad one for a president though. I, you'd need a second term. Um, books. It seems to me uh, you are. I'm just imputing that you are a reader. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love a good book. I love a good book. What do you read? Well, the last book I read was Flash Crash, which I thought was just fascinating. You know, looking at front-running the numbers on Wall Street, I just found it fascinating. And what a rigged game. And the notion of um, any of these brokerage firms that would have their own dark pools that, um, you know, you as a consumer, you lose a couple cents on every share of stock that you trade because it's being front-run by someone else. I mean, wow. Back to legislation. It's a, it, as governor of New Mexico, um, people that have money um, uh, rig the system. And, and government can play a role well, that's in my, leveling the playing exactly. field. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's my question. You've been, you've been obviously critical of TARP. Um, would you have uh, repealed Glass-Steagall? Do you think that there needs to be reimposition of those sorts of, of regulations? Yeah, and just count on me to, uh, as president of the United States, count on me, and this is what I did as governor. You know, we did an analysis of every single bill, and at the end of the day, was the bill going to make things better? Were the, was the average citizen's life going to be improved by the, by the legislation? Or at the end of the day, was it just going to add time and money and really not accomplish anything? Well, for the most part, time and money got added, and at the end of the day, I stood up and said, I don't think it's going to make a difference in any of our lives. Sounds good. Looks good. It's a problem that we have, but government solving it with this piece of legislation? Uh-uh. What is it about the physical? Because you seem to really crave, uh, I wouldn't say the adventure. No, there is an adventure element in it. What is it about this physicality that appeals to you? What kind of state do you get in when you're doing these things? I think that everybody is in search of uh, Zen, being in the state of Zen. And very simply, Zen is just being in the moment. So whatever gets you there, whether that's music, whether that's golf, whether that's reading, writing, you name it, find out what it is. Your, your job, ideally, that you would find yourself in the moment in your job, liking what it is that you do. For me, uh, athletics puts me in the moment. Mountaineering, hey, when all you got to think about is shitting and pissing and uh, drinking and sleeping and... Uh, Breathing. Survive breathing. Um, you know what? Um, that's that's a, a wonderful state to be in. And you like the reduction of those distractions. The in the moment, in the moment. So that's that's athletics for me. Uh, marathons, Ironman, mountaineering, mountain is there biking. A, is there not not to, again? No pun intended. Was there an apex? Was there a moment in your life you felt where you had achieved? How close have you gotten to that ideal? You know what? That's my life every day. Like today is the best day of my life, except for tomorrow. That's, that's my life. Um, getting back to business, money for me has always represented freedom. That's what money has represented for me, not things. So I have enough money. Uh, I don't owe a cent to anybody. No, no mortgage on anything. So uh, That is such a duality with you. And I'm sorry to just harp on this. That's a really significant 
differentiation between you and Trump in the way that it you view is. money. Well, well, my, Donald Trump is the antithesis of what I what I think I would do with money. If I had all the money in the world, would I have a jet aircraft? Absolutely. And I've had an airplane and I'm a pilot. But um, at the end of the day, uh, I don't want gold plated seatbelts on my jet. That's just a, this validation. Do you think he's using money as sort of a validate uh, for validation, not for freedom in the way that you kind of view? It? I do. I absolutely do. And for all the money that he has, he's never going to get. Well, maybe he'll try and charter a helicopter, which would be an illegal landing on Everest. But he's not going to get to the top of Everest. And you've got that. I do. And, and that doesn't involve money. I mean, it involves a certain amount of money, but I put myself in that position. That was my goal. My, so, you don't just, so you don't think this man is a happy, fulfilled person in general? No, I won't make that, I won't make that judgment. I just want you to know that I am a happy, fulfilled I guess, individual. I guess, wait, I, guess, I guess the nature of Zen is not to say, fuck you, I've got Zen and you don't, right? <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, no. If, if this is his living in the moment, which, which the, I, I, that's, anyway. I think his living in the moment is giving a speech. <laughs> Maybe. I really do. I mean, I think the man is completely, he is totally at peace when he's in front of a crowd. I really do. I hey, think. hey, so he's got it. He's got it. And I got it. Okay, so the final thing is here. You're embarking on this. You, you said, uh, the other thing that I heard you say in, in a couple of interviews was that you were really kind of miserable in 2012 when you did this. And you got 0.99, you got 1% essentially of the vote in 99. Uh, and the process of doing it really wasn't fun. Tell me why it wasn't fun and how it's going to be different this time. Well, it's completely so in retrospect, 90 percent of what I did in 2012. And I don't want to take away from all the people that worked so hard. But here it is now. We work so hard and here it is. We are where we're at. But 90 percent of what I did in 2012 ended up to be wasted time. Well, I'm not repeating any of the 90 percent right now because that would be expecting different results. What was the wasted time? Oh, gosh, internet radio. I must have spent three months on internet radio. I mean, as in 24-7, where the person conducting the interview, I envisioned as a, somebody in their mid-40s underwear basement, and the only audience was their parents the next floor up. Well, I am wearing pants. No, you know, there are exceptions to everything, yes. uh, and uh, you, know, you, you pick the best. Showing up to events where thousands of people were guaranteed that if I would just show up, uh, I'd get to address thousands of people. <laughs> I'm not making this up. And there'd be nine people. Right. Well, okay. So now uh, pay my expenses. Just pay my expenses, which aren't, which, you know, we're not talking about a whole lot of expenses. I never fly first class ever. I'm as, I'm as frugal as anybody that you've met. Cheap and frugal are two different things. I'm right. not cheap, but I'm very frugal. But anyway, when people have skin in the game, amazingly, the event turns out closer to Feels what was like promised. Feels like this is a different, this is, I think this is a totally different dynamic than 2012 for you, don't you? Oh, well, t totally. And here's, here's another factor. Here was my trajectory line in 2012. When you go to zero to 1.3 million votes, people don't realize that this is the trajectory line. Sure. Well, that has never stopped. And now that it's, that it's at 10% whenever it gets measured, well, now that, you know, that momentum, that momentum has not, it's been straight line up, really. It's just that now it's gotten noticed. Well, uh, if that's going to be the case, you're going to really make a factor in this election. Listen, Gary Johnson, thanks again for taking the time. Oh, Glenn, it was fun. Thank you. 